0: Let's open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, we're going to continue today our series through the book of Exodus, and we're going to cover, uh, hopefully, the rest of chapter 12, the balance of what we did not cover last week. We'll begin our reading in verse 29, and for the sake of time, we will read um, just a portion of that. Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse... Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took the dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls, and bound it up in cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel also, uh, uh, let's see here, the people of Israel had also done as Moses said to them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they might let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not... Uh, and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. The rest of the chapter, the Lord goes on to detail some of the Passover laws that they will have moving forward, further clarifications on the laws of the Passover feast. Let us pray. Father, would you give us grace to understand Exodus chapter 12, and would you help us to see this passage as fundamental in our understanding of who you are and what you do? May we come to find you to be the great God of integrity who keeps his word, who does exactly what he says he'll do, whether for judgment or for salvation. Help us to take both your warnings and your grace to heart. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was the late 1970s and inflation was high, as was unemployment. Local governments were fast-tracking building projects to get people working. Such was the case with the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Kansas City, Missouri. It was a big structure, a nice structure. It was cutting edge in its design, and it featured an atrium with crisscrossing steel and glass catwalks that went above this atrium at two, three, and four stories above the platform below. As I said, it was a time of fast-tracking construction, and so authorities were moving projects along more quickly than they should. In this case, at the Hyatt Regency Hotel, the engineers and the construction workers did not communicate. And in July of 1981, there was a tea dance at the Hyatt Regency Hotel. There were a bunch of people down below dancing. It was a competition. And so there were many observers, people who weren't dancing but watching loved ones and friends dance and they were on those crisscrossing catwalks that went above the people. The fourth story catwalk was insufficiently constructed and was lucky to even be able to hold its own weight, much less the weight of the people standing on it. The fourth story catwalk let loose and it crashed into the second story catwalk. The combined weight of those people and the catwalk above it caused that one to crash. And the entire structure fell onto the dancing people below. And it killed 114 people. 1981, at the Kansas City Regency Hotel. Those catwalks did not have the integrity that they were designed to have. The catwalks, in a sense, were deceptive. They gave people the impression that they could get on them, that they could walk on them, that they could entrust themselves to those catwalks and enjoy the view down below. But they were false. They could not support. They could not hold the weight that was being thrust onto them. And when something doesn't have integrity, when a person doesn't have integrity, much less a structure, Catastrophe is the result. What God is doing in this passage is showing us his absolute commitment to his own integrity. God has been telling us from the opening chapters of Exodus that he is going to do something, that he is going to accomplish something. In fact, God's promises to his people go back to ancient times. And in this passage, with a sort of metronomic-like effect, God shows that he keeps his word to the letter. And the fact that God keeps his word exactly as he says he will do gives you great confidence to step out in faith for him. In fact, that's what this passage is going to show. God tells the people to go a certain direction. God gives them further commands. And that faith that's required to move out, that faith that's required to obey God, even when those commands seem to run counterculture, are rooted in God's integrity. God keeps his word. God accomplishes what he says he will. There's no shade in him. There's no shadow of turning. And it's that integrity that God wants us to understand today. Just for a little context... We've been working our way through the plagues, and it's somewhat anticlimactic, this plague, isn't it? We've been building and building and building, and then we come to verse 29, and it says at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt. There's no waving of hands, there's no monumental moment. The Lord does exactly what he says he's going to do. He visits the people of the land, and he strikes all the firstborn of that land. It says that not a house among them was without death. And I've been meaning to do this. If you are a firstborn, please stand. Please stand if you're a firstborn. This is how many of us would go. Wow, some of us married firstborns. This is a dangerous thing. <laughs> I married a firstborn, and sometimes we, you know, do firstborn things. So, but look at this. Is there a family among us who would, not be unaf- who would be unaffected? Would all of us have something going on somewhere? Okay, you may be seated. It's staggering, isn't it? Can you imagine that portion of the people of Egypt seeing all those loved ones die? And the passage is clear it's from Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the man who's in the dungeon. There was no exception. Israel, of course, has worshipped, they've enjoyed their Passover meal. They've applied the blood to the door of their house, and now they sit safely under God's salvation. You can imagine the fear and trepidation that would have taken place leading up to that moment. And then suddenly you would hear whimpers and cries and sorrows and moaning and wailing. And you can imagine how a mother clutched her firstborn who was safe and breathing and happy under her care. I don't think there's any age limit to a mother clutching her firstborn knowing that he's survived. They're safe because they believed God and they applied the blood and they got themselves under the sacrifice of the Passover lamb and they're safe. And in this section, we're going to see sort of the fallout of this moment of God striking Israel, or striking Egypt rather, with this tenth plague. And we're going to see how God fulfills his promises and how that fulfillment propels each believer into more obedient faith, more steps of obedient faith. There are four different categories of promises that God fulfills. We've got two main points today, God's promise is fulfilled and God leads his redeemed. But let's just very quickly get the categories of fulfillment from this passage. God keeps his promises to Pharaoh, God keeps his promises to Israel, God keeps his promises to Abraham, and God keeps his promises to Moses. We're going to see all four of those as we work through the text today. But there's four, i I assume I could have come up with more, but those are four different people that Moses is specifically highlighting as having received the kept promise of God. Let's note first that God keeps the promise to Pharaoh. We are told in verse 29 that it was at midnight that God did this plague. And that was a prediction that God gave to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 11, verse 4. He said, this is going to happen at midnight. God was exact in his timing. He would come. He would fulfill this strike upon the land. We're told that it was Yahweh who struck. It was God who would do this. And God had been calling this from all the way back at the beginning in Exodus four twenty-three. God was telling them all along. The Lord was telling Pharaoh all along, this is where it's going. This is where it's leading. Don't think I'm joking. Don't think I'm kidding. And sure enough, at midnight, Yahweh passed through the land and did exactly what he said he would do. Pharaoh was told that he would summon Moses in Exodus chapter 11, verse 8. And Pharaoh could not fathom a scenario where he would invite Moses back into his presence again. Now, you may remember that Pharaoh said to Moses, don't come see me again. If you do, that will be it for you. That will be the la- I will be the last thing you see if you come see me again. And Moses said, very well, you will never see me again. I think that's an easy explanation. The word summon doesn't necessarily mean to summon into my personal presence. Kings would often summon people to an official uh, meeting where the king wasn't necessarily present, but his official ambassadors were. And so Moses and Aaron are summoned to a meeting of government higher-ups where Pharaoh delivers his official word to Moses. But again, Moses told Pharaoh God's message that this would happen. And your servants will bow down to me. You will beg me to leave this land. And at every point, God keeps his promises to Pharaoh. And I want you to notice that these are promises for judgment. God is not messing around when he says he's going to judge people. The author who wrote these words also wrote Genesis 6 and forward, where God, through Noah, told the people of the land that rain and water was going to come and flood the land, and they mocked Noah. They couldn't imagine a scenario where that would happen. And yet God fulfilled his judgmental words to the letter. Later on in Israel's history, God would predict that Babylon would come and carry them away, and the people just couldn't accept that. They couldn't believe that. And prophets like Jeremiah demonstrate to the letter how God fulfilled that word time and again. Words of judgment, promises of judgment. Now friends, This might be the last time I have occasion to say this from the book of Genesis. But there are many who know they are outside of God's grace. They are outside of God's mercy. They know the thread of God's judgment that hangs over their head. You know this. God means what he says. He will fulfill it. His judgment is sure. He is going to burn this world up. He's going to do that to the letter. Every man and woman is going to stand before God and have their deeds judged. And those whose names are not written in the book of life, in the Lamb's book of life, are cast out from God's presence in a hell designed for the devil and his angels. God will keep his word. God will fulfill these words. He fulfilled them to the letter to Pharaoh and he will fulfill them to the letter for us. So please do not harden your hearts. Please listen to the salvation of God. Please accept his offer of forgiveness, his grace, his mercy. Because just as he fulfills his judgment to the letter, so he fulfills his salvation exactly as he says he will do. And that brings us to our next promise that God keeps. He keeps his promises to Israel. He keeps his promises to Israel. He made them a very radical promise. He said, he says, the Egyptians, you will plunder the Egyptians. He makes this promise back in chapter 11, verse 8. And we're told here in verse 33 that the Egyptians were urgent in having the people take stuff. Having the people go. In fact, it's a, it's, it's challenging to bring over into English, but it's a it's kind of a strong Hebrew idea. It says that the people were overpowering upon them to send them away. That you you can almost imagine them packing the bags for the Israelites. Up, get out of here. You want silver, you want gold, you want my grandmother's candlestick, you want that. I saw you looking at my copper pot the other day. Do you want that? please go, go. It's time for you to leave. And they're thrusting stuff on them. Do you need more food? Do you need more money? Do you need more silver? What are you going to need for your journey? Please take it. Please go. And they're pushing them out the door. There was no scenario where the Israelites thought this could ever happen. There was no military scenario this could happen. Yet God promised it. And here in the wake of this great plague on the firstborn child, it was never a thought of the Egyptians to act in retribution, to rise up and harm the Israelites. Quite the contrary, they blessed them and pushed them out. You have your freedom, go, lest we die too. God kept his promise to the Israelites in the unleavened bread. It seems like a small detail, but God is interested in the details. He says, I, we're going to have a feast of unleavened bread because when you escaped from the land of Egypt, you didn't have time to leaven your bread. You guys know that I like to, I, I, I need a creative outlet in my life almost at all times. Generally, that's woodworking. I enjoy making furniture. I'm not very good at it, but I enjoy it. It's fun, and I'll give some stuff to you, and you guys are always very kind uh, to accept it and say, wow, pastor, that's great, and, uh, and then maybe you put it in a closet after I leave. That's fine. I enjoy doing it for you, and you can do with it whatever you want, even if it's firewood. Well, with all my stuff over in storage, I, I, I haven't had that outlet, so I've started cooking. I cook things. Um, it's fun. I, I must admit, though, I'm not very patient when it comes to bread. Um, there's recipes that you have to let the yeast sit in the dough overnight. I haven't done it yet. I can't wait that long. I'm like, show me the recipe that I can proof it in 30 minutes, okay? But they'll always say, it's not as good. You've got to do it overnight. It's a process. It takes time. And the Israelites were putting yeast in their dough that wasn't as strong as the yeast that we have today. In fact, generally speaking, they would just take a lump of yeasted dough and put it into the other lump of unyeasted dough, and it would sit there for a good long time as it fermented and rose. And every time they would pull up fresh plug off it would lose a little bit of potency so it took time and so God says you are going to leave with unleavened bread you're not going to have time for the fermentation process to take place and sure enough they had to take the dough and roll it out real thin like a snake and wrap it up like a sausage in their clothes and throw it around their neck because all their suitcases were filled they didn't have any room for anything else and they left with dough wrapped around their necks and laden over their shoulders just as God said they would God fulfills it to the letter. God keeps His promise to Israel and that they plundered. It's a strong word. It means literally to strip off. As we said in Exodus 11:3, they stripped off. They were told to take note of the things that they might want. And so God supplied them for their journey. They were going to go on a long journey. They were going to encounter some bigger cities on the way. It was going to be a costly trip where they needed to trade with other caravans of peoples. And so God supplied them with finances, with materials to trade, with things that they would need for the house. You can imagine being a slave and not owning a thing, and suddenly you're thrust out into the world. You wouldn't have anything that would be so hard to do. When my wife and I, we bought our first house. We'd been living in a school-provided apartment, and then we bought this house, and It was only after we bought the house we realized we didn't have any furniture to put into our new house. And so we begged the previous homeowner to leave the furniture. And we ended up working out a very good deal for that furniture. And by and by, we've gotten rid of that furniture. We have one piece left. But I remember the shock when I realized, I don't have anything to put in there. Well, these slaves had nothing, but now they have something, and God provided for them through this plundering. Number three, God keeps his promises to Abraham. God keeps his promises to Abraham. I realize that there's a typo. I left out the two, so when you write that down, you can just supply that two. We're told in verses forty and forty-one that Israel has remained in Egypt for four hundred and thirty years. That's a promise that God makes to Abraham in a vision in Genesis chapter fifteen, verse. 13, that they would dwell there for, his seed would dwell there for 400 years. Well, that was excluding the amount of time between when the promise was made and when Isaac came along. And then the 400 years began. And so Moses notes very specifically God is keeping the promise that he made to our father many, many centuries ago. 430 years. Now, I will confess to you, I don't have time to even point out the difficulties with it, much less the answers to it. But that chronology of 400, 430 years combined with some of the things that Paul says in his speeches and in the book of Galatians is a very complicated chronological um, problem to work through. I wouldn't say problem, but it's, uh, there's a lot of moving parts and numbers. And if that's something that interests you, Apologetics Press has an excellent article on this passage, explaining how all of those dates work together. And if that's something that you would like to pursue, I'm happy to forward that article on to you. But after having studied and read that article, I'm sufficiently convinced that uh, these numbers are exact and precise. They're exactly how God intended them, and he means what he says. In verse 32, did you notice this when we read it? Pharaoh says something very interesting. He says, up, you, leave, go, get out of here. And then what does Pharaoh say? And bless me. What a strange thing to say. Did Pharaoh know about God's promise to Abraham? In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, and you will be a blessing. And here, even in judgment, even in thrusting the people forth on the very night God had intended them, even against his will, God is asking a child of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, to be a blessing to him, to bless him. This was an acknowledgement of the superiority of God and the superiority of following God. It was not conversion, we'll find that out later, but it was a grim acknowledgement and in fulfillment of what God had promised Abraham. Not a total fulfillment, but a partial fulfillment. One of those little nuances that Moses throws into the story because he's making connections now with other promises that God has made. We're told that a mixed multitude went with him as well. Again, God is being a blessing to the nations. Well, this mixed multitude was a, a, a group of other slaves. The Hebrews weren't the only slaves in the area. Furthermore, uh, Egypt was a a cosmopolitan city. There were a lot of different nationalities and a lot of different cultures, and they saw the plagues firsthand, and they realized that Israel's God was the true God and stood above the pantheon of Egypt. And we're also led to assume that many of this mixed multitude were Egyptians themselves, the ones who perhaps feared the word of the Lord and brought their animals in before the plague of hail. They found protection and thus found protection under God's hand. These are people who would have joined, perhaps, in coming under blood so that they could be covered by the death angel. A large group of people escaped Egypt, people who had eyes to see and ears to hear, a people who observed what God was doing, and they left along with Israel. And this was a promise that God made to Abraham. You will be a blessing to the nations. You will be a blessing to all nations. And as it were, all nations are leaving with Israel. And we're told that 600,000 men of fighting age left with the people of Israel. And again, this is a fulfillment. God said that his seed, Abraham's seed through Isaac, would number more numerous than the stars in the heavens. Now, 600,000 fighting men isn't that numerous, but it's a beginning of the fulfillment of what God had promised. I have two cross-references up there, numbers 232 and 2651. If there is a number in the book of Exodus that liberal scholars or critics of the Bible love to scoff at, it's this number 600,000. For the simple fact that it's a big number. When you ask them, When you read, they say, well, that 600 number, that 600,000 can't be the real number. Well, why? Well, because 600 is too big. 600,000 is too big. And they'll go on to try to demonstrate how the word thousand in the Hebrew language can mean differing things. The trouble is, there are other points in the context of Moses' writings that demonstrate that he meant 600,000. There were two censuses taken shortly after this event in which the count came to 603,000 and change, and then another count at the end of the 40 years, and the number came to over 600,000. It was very similar, almost identical to the previous number. And so here there's three countings of people, and they all land right in that range. Furthermore, this whole event started because the... Egyptians were worried that the Hebrew nation was getting too big. And if it was 6,000 or 16,000, as I'd seen proposed, or even 60,000, that doesn't represent an existential threat to Egypt. But 600,000 does. And that explains God's Mm -hmm. blessing of the people of Israel despite their harsh circumstances. And so God kept his promise to Abraham that he would have numerous descendants, and so they leave, with probably in the neighborhood of two million or so people. Um, two million men of two million people, six hundred thousand of fighting age. Number four, God keeps his promises to Moses. God keeps his promises to Moses. Pharaoh summons Moses, <laughs> which we see in Exodus 416, his promise. Moses was, I'm sure, wondering, God, how is this all going to work out? Or, for example, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, it says that all of them went out. And sure enough, all of them went out. And if that number is 600,000, and we believe it is, with all the other women and children, that's a lot of people to get rounded up and get moving at once. And God keeps his promise to the letter. All of them, without exception, get up and leave the nation. They're compelled to leave Egypt that very first night. God keeps his word to the letter. He made promises to these four, to Israel, Moses, Pharaoh, and Abraham, and he keeps them all along the way. And this passage is showing us exactly how he does what he says he will do. Now that leads us to our second point for today, and that is that God leads redeemed. We'll work through this material relatively quickly. God leads, is redeemed. The people have left. They've gathered up together. They're moving forward now. Now get in your mind the picture of the geography of the area, and I'm going to make a little V, okay? The Vs are the little forks in the Red Sea. Can you imagine that? This is Egypt in this V, And this is land down here. And the promised land is up here. Okay? Egypt, promised land. Imagine, instead of going from here to the promised land, you take a right turn and go straight south. (laughs) That's where Succoth is. That's where uh, God was sending his people. They send them, God sends them on a bit of a roundabout journey. They sort of follow the coastline of, what was it, the Gulf of Suez. We don't know the exact locations of these places, but we can take a pretty good guess. There's all sorts of things that have been found, though maybe not the exact cities. Uh, Archaeologists will tell you that there was a mine, an Egyptian-held copper mine, uh, on the South Sinai Peninsula, the South... West edge of the Sinai Peninsula. And the Hebrews wanted to come around and hit those mines and pick up the Hebrew slaves that were there. And then they would continue further south. And they're going to follow that V loop around and up to the promised land. Now, God is leading them in a circuitous route. They're supposed to go north, bearing northeast eventually but God sends them south-bearing southeast. They're going way around the horn. God tells us later in chapter 13, verses 17 and 18, that God doesn't want them to go directly to the promised land, lest the fighting get too hot and they break and run. Now the people in their zeal think, well, of course we wouldn't run. But we find out later in the book of Numbers that they did, and they would. God knew best. But suffice it to say, this becomes a bit of a question mark for the people of God, and maybe even Moses himself was concerned about it. God tells us to go there. He tells us we're leaving to go there, but instead he's leaving us here, which is not there, but away from there. Here is not there. And I'm sure there were some backseat drivers among them who had some smart-aleck things to say about Moses not knowing his right hand from his left and leading the people this way instead of that. But this is why God has laid the foundation of keeping his word. This is why God has previously laid the foundation of his integrity, so that when God begins leading them in, albeit, a different direction than is intuitive, the people would have faith. The second thing God does is he gives further Passover instructions. I'm going to click through the points of this very quickly. The Passover meal was to form a national identity. No foreigner uh, was uh, to participate, and all the Israelites were to participate. No foreign participation, total participation from the Israelite people. But if foreigners wanted to participate they could. They simply had to adopt the sign of national identity with the Hebrews, which was circumcision for all male members of the family. It just so happens that that was a widely practiced um, procedure in the ancient ancient Near East, and so it's likely, especially if Egyptians were traveling with this group, that they had already, um, unbeknownst to them, submitted to the ordinance. For those who needed to submit to it, yes, they would have to if they wanted to take part in the Passover meal. But God is stipulating that all the Israelites are to participate and foreigners who are unwilling to take on the national identity, none of them can participate. Secondly, uh, the Passover, this is third, rather, the Passover was not to be dissected nor broken. It was to be enjoyed whole in one house. And so I I don't I, I've never well, have I? I? I've eaten a goat before. Um it seemed to feed a bunch of us, but I, I honestly don't know how much meat a one year old lamb provides. But let's say it's too much for me and my family. Well I don't go to the butcher, according to these laws, and say, hey Give me a half, um, cut it in half, and we'll eat half, and the Penningtons buy the other half, and they eat that half in their house. No, no. We buy the whole lamb, and either we go to the Penningtons and eat the whole lamb, or they come to our house and eat the whole lamb. Also, the lamb is not supposed to have bones on it broken, which might have been tempting. They, that may have made it easier for cooking purposes. When I make the Thanksgiving turkey, I like to cut the backbone out and push it down and break the ribs so that it cooks flatter and more evenly, keeps the white meat from drying out, hopefully. Well, they weren't allowed to do that because this wasn't necessarily about a culinary feast. This was about a picture of the coming lamb who would take away the sins of the world, who would not have a broken bone, who would not be dissected, He would be sacrificed whole, and God wanted the Israelites to preserve that picture in their celebration of it. Now, let's move on to a few applications from this passage. Number one, God has taken great pains to fulfill his word so that we will have the faith to move forward. God has taken great pains to fulfill his word so that we'll have the faith to move forward. You know what's really scary? Stepping out on something that you're unsure is going to hold your weight. There's a tree branch. Take three steps out, four steps out onto that thing. And that'll tell you if you really trust that that branch is whole. There's hotels that I've stayed in that have balconies. And when I step out, I can hear the thing rattling. Get all the way out to the edge and see if that will hold you. Do you really trust that that thing is going to hold? And God is constantly asking us to trust his word and step out on it. And God wants us to know that that branch isn't going to fall out from under our feet. That we're not going to be cut off and left hopeless and helpless. God takes great pains to fulfill his word to the letter as a warning, as a help for salvation, as a, as a buttress to our faith but as we move forward in faith, he wants us to remember all those times he took great pains to fulfill his word so that it gives us confidence to know he'll fulfill it for us. God wants us to have that confidence. Number two, oftentimes God's commands cut across our culture, instincts, or desires. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, There's a way that seems right to a man. But that way leads to death. It wasn't intuitive for the Israelites to exclude foreigners from the Passover meal. Don't you think some of the foreigners got upset? We left with you. We left our lives behind. Now we can't eat the Passover meal with you simply because we haven't done circumcision? No, this is what God says. It's going to run against culture. It's going to cut against what you think. It wasn't convenient for moms of that time to get their houses in order so that they could have another family come over when the lamb could have just as easily been chopped in half. God often gives us commands that seem to run across our culture, both big and small. And God is constantly showing us the fulfillment of his word so that when we cross swords with our culture, or with our emotions, or with our intuition, it will give us the girth we need to overcome those anxieties and fears. To remember that God is for us, and it doesn't really matter what the culture at large would say. To bring our sense, my inborn sense of rightness or wrongness, or what should happen, underneath of God's word, who fulfills his word at every turn. Trust in what God is doing helps us to overcome those reluctant times we have to follow God in his word, especially when it runs across what everything in us and everything outside of us says not to do. Number three, sometimes God's leading takes us in a curious or even painful direction. Sometimes God's leading takes us in a curious or an even painful direction. In Mark chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus puts the disciples in a boat and tells them to row to the other side. And this is something that they were good at. They are professional fishermen. Get in the boat, row. They knew how to do that. In fact, I'm sure they were really skilled at it, faster than you and I could do it. They get in, they start growing. And what happens? A storm hits. The mother of all storms. They think they're going to die. Had they gotten there because they disobeyed God? No, hardly. They got there precisely because they obeyed Christ. And he had them on purpose go in a direction that caused them pain. But what they got to see was the Lord Jesus Christ walk on water and still the sea. God might be taking you right now in a curious or even painful direction. But he's told you that his promises are good. That steadfast love and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. That he will not withhold any good thing from you. That he's already given you Christ Jesus, therefore everything else short of that is easy by comparison. And this pain that you feel right now, or this uncertainty that you're experiencing... All of that is simply a stage for which God can show up and deliver you mightily and you will see him in new and fascinating and worshipful ways that you could not have seen had he not sent you through the curious or painful I know God takes us in curious and painful directions sometimes, and I don't minimize the hurt, and neither does God. And that's why he takes such great care in fulfilling his word to the letter, so that when the pain hurts the most, you'll remember his convictions, and you'll have hope. Let's pray. Father, give us that hope. Give us that hope to cling to your word and cling to your goodness and cling to your grace. I know firsthand of several among us who are going through a curious or painful time right now. They're unsure, they're hurting, or somewhere in between, or both. May they cling to the way you fulfill your word and to the promises that you've made. And I pray that that would fill each of us with a sense of purpose and hope and watchfulness. Lord, those who wait on you mount up with wings as eagles. We run and we do not faint. And so help us to wait on you, and wait for the revealing of yourself into our situation. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name.